0: Someone asked me, um, um, is motivation really important for a coach? And right off the top of my head, and I still believe this, I said, yes, motivation is very, very important. It's very important that the athletes motivate me to coach.
1: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. For a generation, Dick Telford's worked with some of Australia's most elite sports people. He was the first sports scientist appointed to the Australian Institute of Sport, and his athletes have included Rob DiCostello, Lisa Ondecki, Martin Dent, and Caroline Chihuahua. Dick's also a pretty handy athlete himself. In the late 1960s, he played AFL for Collingwood and Fitzroy before switching to running. He's run a marathon in two hours, 27 minutes, city to surf in 45 minutes, won a bronze medal for the 1500 metres of the World Veteran Games. Age 71, Dick is whippet thin and moves fluidly. He trains a small squad of runners and himself runs twice a day. His 2015 book, Running Through the Looking Glass, is both a great training manual and a terrific compendium of stories about Australia's elite athletes. If you're a serious Australian runner and you don't own it, please press the pause button now, go online, buy yourself a copy, and then come back. Dick, thanks very much for joining us in the good life today.
0: It's a pleasure, Andrew.
1: So what does it take to be a good coach?
0: Well, um, I think you've got to understand uh, the basic principles. Probably more so from the point of view that you need to have your athletes having perfect confidence in in you as a coach, that you understand what you're talking about, and you're not just getting up there telling them to do things with no real rationale behind it.
1: Have all of your athletes been friends in that sense?
0: Yes, I think so. Yeah, and, I, and that's that's an important point that um, a coach. Um, yeah, we talk about having sports psychologists with, with athletes, and that becomes important at times, but really, uh, the coach is the number one sports psychologist. The coach is the, the all in one, you know, it's a psychologist, a biomechanist, a sort of a skills coach. Yes. But a friend. And I think being a friend is up there, and it ranks as highly as any of those other attributes.
1: It really comes through in your book that you, you, you're not just proud of the performance of your athletes on the track. You're also proud of them as people. You seem to really, really like them, admire admire their quirks and so on. And
0: yeah. well, I remember, uh, you know, when I was writing one part of that book, it was it was actually before that. I think it was a, a radio program I was doing, and someone asked me, um, um, "Is motivation really important for a coach?" And right off the top of my head, and I still believe this, I said, "Yes, motivation is very, very important." It's very important that the athletes motivate me to coach. And, and, <laughs> and, and basically, that's it, because I, I've got, for example, tonight, I go at to Stronglow tonight, the Stronglow Park uh, cross-country course, which, by the way, I think is one of the best venues for cross-country in the world that I've ever seen. Yes. And I hope we have the world championships there one day. Um, but I go out there tonight, and I thoroughly look forward to it. You know, it's a highlight of the day. I'll go out there, and we'll... We'll do a little bit of work on the grass there and we'll go up into a little place I call the Eucalypt Hill where there's some eucalypts still standing from where the fires mm. went through in 2003. And uh, I love that little place because it reminds me of where I used to run with the likes of Rob Costella and, and Andrew Lloyd and, and Carol as well, some of the people you've mentioned before.
1: Uh, but your squad's still a pretty serious squad, right? I mean, you, uh, you had some runners who were under 30 minutes in the Bernie 10K on the weekend, didn't you?
0: I did, yeah. Well, that's... That was really good. I've got two runners there. Like in Canberra, I think we've got about 25 in the squad. Um, they range from people who, in their wildest dreams, might finish you know, top 10 in the Canberra times, or top three perhaps, you know, they, which is fantastic. And It might be a 45-year-old woman with three kids. And, and they're fantastic to coach. They're as keen as the Olympic athletes. Then it ranges down to the person who came second in that race you mentioned Andrea, which was the Bernie 10K which is the, I think it's the richest uh, 10K road race in Australia, so they told me down there. (laughs) And, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, this uh, runner of mine called uh, Jordan Gussman, he finished second in the 1500 metres at the recent national championships to the the Australian who made the final of the 1500 metres over in Rio, which was fantastic. Uh, But the other day, he ran uh, 29.39, sorry, 28.39 for the 10K, after a, a winter of training, which sort of, in the back of my mind, gets me to ask the question, what is his best event? Because he's not that far away from qualifying in the 10K for the World Championships. But on the other hand, um, what we do nowadays as coaches, we, we don't just rely on speed attribute. For for example, for a 1,500 metre like Jordan Gussman, the chap I was talking about, we have to get you know a really good aerobic base so they've got something really substantial to work their, all the speed work we might do during the summer from. So it's a, it's a case of athletes nowadays have to be very versatile to be, to be good in any event, particularly a championship event. Mm, mm. And just the wa- last comment on that while I think of it is that in a championship event, and Rio is a big example, like the 1500 metres, it could turn into a 400 metre sprint. Right. Everyone plays cat and mouse for three, three laps and it goes like hell for the last lap, and you end up getting the, the fastest 400-metre run wins a 1,500-metre of it.
1: I found Rio's 1,500 so disappointing to watch, watch as a race because it was so slow in those first few laps. Uh, you know, there's, there's club runners from around Australia would have comfortably sta- stayed with that pack. Uh, I've kind of felt like if I wanted to watch a four hundred meter race, I'd be watching a four hundred meter race. But, but where's the where 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 are the distance runners? Maybe it was either that or the three K. One of those events. Oh, no, you're Very right.
0: So. It was the fifteen hundred meters, and it happens at a lot of events like that because they no one wants to do this so-called work up mm. the front. We know there's a bit of air resistance that might cause one or two percent extra, but you know it, You'll get the champion, the real champion runners like Radisha in the eight hundred meters, who says. I am going to the front straight away, if I can, unless someone really prevents me. And I'm going to work to the front, work to the front, and I'm going to not let anyone pass me. Yes. Now, you've got to be a true blue champion to do that. I think it's a lot of other runners who aren't quite confident of their ability uh, that may say, well, I, I think I'm quicker over the last 800 metres in this 1,500 metre race, or quick, so I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to do any of the work, and I'm just going to go when I feel like it. Mm. But it's a lot of the other runners, including the Australian, who it was a bit disappointing there because I think if he had gone a bit earlier himself, he might have got himself up there in the top six you know, or top five or might have even done better. There's a chap called Nick Willis, who I don't think is much different from our runner. He's a little bit faster, but Nick's one, he's from New Zealand. He's won two bronze medals in the Olympics and yet his times aren't anywhere near as quick as some of the other runners that haven't won medals that have made finals in those Olympics. But Nick's done the right thing. He's got himself right up the front and been a little bit lucky with getting a run on the rails, for example, but mm, he's mm. been right up the front, giving himself a shot, and I'd say he's been the best racer in the 1,500 metres in the, in the last few Olympics that I've seen, the yeah. best racer.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, in terms of the training styles, I mean, there's this comment, I, I guess people make a lot that uh, in the 60s and 70s people would talk about uh, the Arthur Lydiard model of uh, lots of miles and the Percy Cerity model of lots of intensity. These days, most athlete, athletes at the top seem to be doing both. Uh, they're running extraordinary numbers of Ks every week, but also the sheer intensity of the sessions is, uh, is, is so much tougher than it, uh, than it seems to have been in the past. Is that, is that a fair observation?
0: I think it's, uh, it's a fair observation uh, with one reservation that going back to the days of Lydiard. And Percy City, having been around as a as sort of a youngster that wasn 't you know directly involved in running but just interested in running because I was playing football and cricket, um, they trained hard mm. they really did train hard and and even talking to some of the old coaches of runners from Ast- a lot of very very good Australian runners of those days, they very good New Zealand runners um, they were doing a huge mileage. Some of them doing two hundred and thirty, two hundred and forty. I remember it, it, K's a week. I remember talking to Derek Clayton, and uh, Derek Clayton ran, I think, two hours eight and thirty-three minutes, two hours eight minutes and thirty-three seconds. Is that right? I think that's about right, Andrew, to win to 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 run a world record in nineteen sixty-eight. I think that was, um, but I. Was starting out as a as a student. Uh, in, it was in the medical faculty, actually, at uh, Melbourne University, and I was doing some research in in physiology on the third level, the fourth level of this the medical building on the corner of Grattan Street and Sydney Road. There, <laughs> uh, I got a lot of good memories there. But we only didn't have a uh, didn't have a uh, treadmill. We couldn't afford a treadmill. That little lab we had at that so that exercise physiology, wasn't really in. And, uh, I had Derek Clayton come in because we were measuring his heart size and seeing how different Mm. that was from a normal person. And I had to get him on a a bike and say, well, I want to correlate that with your uh, maximal oxygen uptake, which is the way we measure aerobic uh, power. And uh, when he he was on that bike, um, I could see that he'd gone to exhaustion, absolute exhaustion. Um, And this is a time where he'd been retired about a year, I'd say. Uh, absolutely I said well, Derek right, you can finish now because I've got you at your max rocks and he he could hardly breathe hardly speak and out the side of his valve just pulled it out of the way he said no I haven't I've got more in me and he just kept on going and going, and going would not stop <laughs> now that in those days I I'll look back at that now and say well that's Derek Clayton he was able to run extraordinary distances a week to the point that he upset all his joints I think <laughs> and and uh, Um, and became a champion and I believe that was because he thought that he had to train twice as hard as everybody else who were more talented than him to beat the rest of the world and he was desperate to beat the rest of the world and he ultimately did do that which is fantastic.
1: So how much of success in distance running is to do with just sheer pain tolerance I mean, people talk about the collagen Kenyans as having some genetic advantages, but also having the advantages of these pain rituals, which are incredibly intense uh, for, uh, for, for teenagers. Um, do, you, do you see pain tolerance as being a, a big part of success in distance running?
0: I think it has to be, but I, I, I can't answer that question with any confidence, Andrew, because it's so difficult to determine that. But all I know is that the athletes that I've um, coached that have been uh, very successful internationally have had what I would consider, you know, a very, very good tolerance of pain. You know, it's a, it's, a matter, it's a matter of them being so desperate and motivated to do what they want, to dedicate, in most cases, their whole working life to running. Mm. You know, they'll go and spend time at altitude overseas, at the expense of setting themselves up with a career back here in Australia. Um, Some of them have been smart and they do some study along the way, which has been terrific. I remember Sean Crichton, who's now a a successful lawyer here in Canberra, doing that. And when I was away with him a few times, I'd see him sneak away, as I used to do too, and we'd we'd catch up with a bit of work for two or three hours in a local coffee shop or something. But (laughs) going back to that question, I really do think uh, pain tolerance is, is has got a lot to do with it. I'm not sure whether the, the top athletes do register more pain or whether it's they can do things at any particular level with less pain that, that counts, but it's certainly got something to do with performance. Mm.
1: And there must be a real challenge as a coach working out how much you uh, work on people's styles too. Uh, I remember you had a bit in your book where you talk about... Uh, the asymmetrical styles of running styles of both Rob D. Costello and John Landy and, and how you you figured you didn't you didn't want to didn't want to muck with that because it was working for them. When do you step in to change an athlete's running style and when do you hold back?
0: Well, um, I, I guess just looking back on the last couple of months of my coaching where I've had some new runners come in and some things sort of stick out like, you know, <laughs> a sort of thumb. And whilst I do have in the back of my mind that we've had some of our best runners that have had techniques that one might not automatically think were the most efficient um, and what would happen if they're the best in Australia or best in the world um, in some cases. What would happen if I changed that? Wouldn't they be better? You know, that's, that's the question I think. Well, I can't see that. And then when mm-hmm. I put some of those people on the treadmill to have a look at their efficiency by measuring the amount of energy they put out uh, in ratio to their to their running speed, yep. sometimes they've surprised me that even though they've got these techniques we might look as being uh, a perfect technique, they're very, very efficient. Mm-hmm. Maybe still they could improve by improving their technique because other things determine uh, mechanical efficiency as well. But um, going right back to that question, yes... When I see people who are rotating excessively up top, or they've got arm actions that cause huge asymmetrical activity, um, then I have to say there's no question to me. If I did put them on the treadmill, measured their oxygen consumption or their energy output at a particular running speed, I think I would be able to correct them. Then I would say, let's make that look prettier, you know, yeah, because that's what we look. Let's make we want to look. And I often justify this and say, well. Look, I'm not absolutely sure whether it's going to fix you up, but you're going to look much nicer as a runner. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and you, you don't uh, in, train with barefoot running, do you? But you do sort of mix it up with, by changing the running shoes around a little?
0: I have some runners that, um, that uh, do run barefoot at times, on the grass, at, at Stromlo particularly. Uh, I like to mix up. I like to have variety in training. I think mm-hmm. it's a, a basic principle of my program. Number one reason, I get bored. If <laughs> <laughs> they do the same thing, go to the same place. And I love training in bushy areas. I love getting out the back of, back of Canberra here, at, uh, You know, for example, in, uh, at Stromlo, through, the, through the, well, that the trees are growing again, or the back of Red Hill, or out here at Ainsley, Mount Madura, just fantastic places around the back of the, back of the War Memorial. They're beautiful places to run. And I like the runners to really enjoy their running. And there are times, you know, it's good to be able to tell them, just go for an easy run. Just go, just go for a relaxed run. Now, mind you, I don't do that too often. <laughs> 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 but occasionally, you know, in, for their recovery runs, go for it. And pick a nice place to enjoy your yeah. run, get out, mm-hmm. and really, uh, we might meet up for coffee after or something like that. That's what I call really enjoying the sport. Yes. So back to the question. Um, I keep deviating. I know, Andrew. But um, barefoot running, I think, has a good place. But one wouldn't. While variety is good, sudden change is not. You don't suddenly go from wearing a heel and shoes that have got good padding, to be able to run on the road, et cetera, to suddenly running a lot of barefoot work Mm. because that'll change your technique, change the stress that you have on the Achilles tendon, for example. You're going through a different range of motion. And uh, any change like that is... uh, Potentially dangerous for a runner uh, running, you know, substantial kilometres each week.
1: Yeah, but that that notion of loving the training, uh, which I find myself running uh, around Mount Majura, and Mount Ainslie, uh, seems to be a, a signal characteristic of the way in which you you train. And and you talk about it in contrast with the way in which Percy Syrady trained, which was incredibly intense. But you make the Really important observation that many of his runners, not just Herb Elliott, gave up the sport quite young. Uh, And you have a lovely line there where you say Percy was the breeze that kept the embers glowing rather than igniting the fire in the first place.
0: Yes, Um, in that section of the book, Andrew, I think I was trying to get to get to the bottom of of why Herb Elliott um, retired at such a young age in very early twenties, and. I purposely didn't ring up her, but ask him. I, I, I wasn't sure whether I'd get the right answer from him or not. Anyway, so I, uh, I didn't. Know. I wonder if he's read the book, <laughs> seen that part. I wonder what he thinks of what I said. But uh, I, I sort of felt that through, through Percy's training, and his incredible motivating tactics, that um, that. He put Herb under a lot of pressure and Herb was the sort of person unlike some runners that I do have now that don't worry too much about racist love getting into it, not worried about getting into it. But Herb was so dedicated in protecting an unbeaten record mm. that I think that pressure built up. On To Percy's favour though, um, he never ever, as far as I understood from just reading something that uh, that, that Herb Elliott wrote, Herb uh, I think said at one stage that Perce never gave him a training program. He says just get out there and train hard, and a lot of it was up in the bushy areas. It wasn't just running around the track like Fran Stanford did. I, if I had to, um, you know, I, I pick up bits and pieces from all these, you know, these coaches that, that just inspire you. But I would say I'm closer to Percy than I would be to Fran Stanford, hmm. but somewhere in the in between, because Percy didn't do a lot on the track. I, I like doing some on the track, but a lot in the bush, like Percy used to do down and down at the beach and so on.
1: So, if we had sand hills in Canberra, you'd be getting your runners out on them.
0: Yes, uh, well, just as good as sand hills are the hills we've got at the back of the Institute of Sport, for example. They're, they're a bit, little bit sandy and you know they're a bit rough to run on. We yeah. go up. I don't really need the sand. If I had them here, I I, um, I would use them. Yeah, probably out of respect for Percy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Not sure what they do. Uh,
1: and do, so hills are an important part of your training, even, even for your track runners then?
0: Oh, yes. Well, to me, um, there's a lot of different components that contribute to, to running. You've got your aerobic fitness, you've got your anaerobic fitness, your ability to run, for example, 400 metres, 200 metres. Um, and contributing to those two energy systems, we have strength coming in somewhere strength and power, which is the ability probably more closely uh, related to running speed over 100 metres and 200 metres. Mm. Now, we were speaking before about championships, for example, that if I've got a 5K runner who wants to run well in a championship and take Andrew Lloyd was a big example in in Auckland in the Commonwealth Games. Um, One of Andrew's easy attributes to train was just natural speed. And it's my belief now, because I I coached him probably from the age of 25, I reckon I missed the boat because I reckon he could have been a champion 1,500 metre runner. But that, being a champion 1,500 metre runner, won him a gold medal at Auckland because he was able to run the fastest last lap of a race. Not that it was was slowed right down like it did in 1,500 metres did in Rio, which was still a good speed, Mm. but off that speed he was able to produce a blinding last lap and win by a very, you know, a marginal amount of... couple of inches at the end from from a world champion runner who happened to have fallen over early in the event and tied himself out, out a little bit more. But that happens in the yes. race.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, do you notice that... Uh, what's the thinking now in terms of cross-training and use of, use of resistance training? Is uh, is that sort of waned from where, where it was? Do you focus much more on just
0: run, run, run? Um, no, I think it depends on... If I'm looking at some athletes that I coach at the moment, one young lady who's got um, a lot of ability, I coach, she lives down the coast, comes up occasionally to, uh, she's been out injured for a couple of years. And another young lady who's another very, very good one, both of these girls are represented Australia. Australia, um, they're in the mid 20s now, they haven't run, both of them haven't run for two years. Now, it would be silly for me to think that I could just go back and give them a normal program, expect mm. them to suddenly run well for me when they hadn't been able to. So we have got to change things. So with these individuals, uh, I'll mix up their training from running, some gym and weight training, lots of work like that, some water work, uh, which is swimming and running in the water, and some cycling. And we'll mix that up so they can, they're not quite triathletes because the emphasis is more on running. Mm, mm. But each of these girls would be good triathletes if they change the emphasis a bit more, but they want to run. So uh, it's horses for courses. And some of the other runners, I would tend not to do too much of the cross-training Andrew, because they um, would tie themselves out a bit too much for the intensity of training they need in running to to make that improve. And they've got the resilience to be able to do that, whereas other runners can't do that.
1: And so if you're talking about an uninjured runner, you would tend to have them do... In a typical week, would, uh, would would your elite, uninjured runners be doing anything apart from running?
0: Well, in, in, they do gym work. Okay. Uh, even a marathon runner like Michael Shelley, who won the gold medal um, in the last Commonwealth Games, and he's defending, trying to defend that in his hometown in Gold Coast. But uh, Michael's one of the athletes that I train by correspondence. It's regular. I probably speak to him and see his information on his that he sends me uh, by emails. More than the runners I see here. In some ways, I know more about his training than I do the runners I'm looking at. But um, uh, Michael, even though he's running 200 plus K a week, week in, week out, uh, only been injured once. Unfortunately, that was before the last Olympics. uh, So we got that wrong. But uh, he's back into it now. And he would always do his gym work on Monday and Wednesday uh, where he mixes that up with some cycling as well. Mm. Uh, if he's a little bit more tired, I might ease him off uh, some of his running and give him a little bit more of the gym or those sort of things because you can get specifically tired just for running, as you well know.
1: Indeed. And just before we leave uh, elite uh, training, do you have favourite workouts at the moment that you're uh, you're enjoying doing with your squad?
0: Um, well, I, I, I enjoy all the, all the workouts that we do, but... Um, Tonight we're going over and doing a session. Well, I haven't done it for a while that session I mentioned before on the hills. is up through the eucalyptus It's a beautiful day outside, so I'll be looking. I'll enjoy um, uh, working at stopwatch with the, with my left hand thumb, while the others are punishing themselves up and down those hills, and I'll be jogging up behind them, encouraging them. Now I really enjoy that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how long's the hill, and how? Uh, what's the what's the sort of recovery session?
0: Well, typical of my uh, philosophy, it's varied. I can start and do a hill that might take them half a minute to a hill that might take them two or three minutes uh-huh. and they'll jog down. I might jog up behind them and as they come down I'll say, turn around, get straight up again. Sometimes it's a little bit, I uh, sometimes vary it. so I'm not quite sure what's going to happen all the time and I'll have something in the back of my mind say, well, this is a session I want, but I can do this different ways depending on how I think they're, how they're working at that session. So they, they get a bit used to me that, you know, some athletes would like to say, right, I'm doing 10, 400 today. My athletes will say, "Well, I'll give you ten four hundred, but gee, that could change, you know." Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's not a problem, I don't think.
1: Yeah, I find when my body knows that it's doing, you know, six one-minute sprints, that uh, I'm by the time I get to two or three, I, I'm, I'm sometimes holding a little bit back just because I want to get through get through the entire session, yeah. and uh, that's not the best way of, uh, of of doing a session, I don't think. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't be sort of pacing myself through like that. I, I should be pushing each one right out.
0: Well, um, yes and no, Andrew, because if you're doing a session, let's say you said uh, six one-minute efforts, if you, want to turn, if you want to make your six one-minute efforts a good aerobic-type, strong aerobic, endurance-type session, then if you did six one-minute efforts, um, all at an even pace, say so your last one was as good as your first one, you weren't going downhill... And your recovery was only a short recovery, or you might be jogging during that recovery, or just recovering in time. That could be a very good aerobic effort. However, if you want to do six one-minute efforts, where you wanted to turn that into more of an aer- anaerobic session, for example, you I know you're a distance runner, but you might want to see what you can do at a fifteen hundred yeah. and see you know really what's going on there. Then six one-minute efforts, where you went really hard for the first two or three. And then instead of having just two minutes rest, you gave yourself four minute rest, so you could go really hard for the next couple, mm. then mm. that gives you an anaerobic workout. So six one minute efforts can be an aerobic workout or it can be an anaerobic workout, depending on how you do it.
1: Got it, got it. And in terms of uh, the uh, somebody who's starting out, to what extent, uh, what's, what advice do you give to people who come to you who are, not your elite sort of runners, but just somebody who hasn't run before and uh, uh, would like to be able to do a 5k park run each Saturday morning.
0: Well, there's. Um, I tried to set something. I, I don't see too many of these people. The people that tend to come to me are the ones that are really dead set keen on doing this. And I, I, I suppose. You get the Greyhounds, is, not the Daxons. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it might have. I don't mind these people joining the group it doesn't take up my time at all uh, really um but it's just when they when they're running with say 15 runners who are very very good and they're you know 200 meters off the back it's it doesn't do them it, it's nice to have a group that's more your own mm. your own mm. level but for the people that um for those people you're talking about that want to for example run the canberra times fun run or city to surf even that's which i think the city to Surf's the hardest so-called fun run shouldn't call it a fun run in the world you know it's I remember just digressing slightly sure. in the one year running City to Surf and the San Francisco Beta Breakers. And Beta Breakers was just, a, you know, it's nothing. You know, <laughs> yeah, they call it heartbreak hill. You run up this hill. Fair enough. It goes for a while. But City to Surf gives you heartbreak hills one after the other. You know, you, you, have you run City to Surf?
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I ran it uh, right. at age 18 at, in 53 minutes and age uh, 45. In 54 minutes, well, oh, that's um, terrific. Well off your 45-minute pace, but I found on both occasions the challenge was still having something in the tank as you came over the hill in order to be able to accelerate down. Because if you're completely spent at the top of the hill, you're actually not taking adv- full advantage of the downhill.
0: Uh. Well, only a professor of economics could work that out on paper. <laughs> <laughs> and it, could, it took me 20 years and it's taken you probably a lot less time. But that's exactly the way to run those races where you've got to save yourself going and be able to run over the top and down. Um, and that's how I do coach for city to surf. A lot of people just get at to the top and, yeah, and I think, I've just got to be able to recover down the hill. But you lose time that way rather than evening out your heart rate, if you like. So yeah, your heart rate's yeah. not maximised at the top, which is easier said <laughs> than done, isn't it? Because some of those hills, they're damn good hills in the city to surf.
1: Here's an interesting one for you. Although I ran a minute slower 20 years later, I placed 200 places better, 300th compared to about 500th. Are elite runners staying away from the city to surf now just because it's so hard to, to get, get into the very front or because there's other events on or because it doesn't pay as much?
0: There's an alternative explanation, of course, that you, you are getting better. Um, no,
1: but I, my time was slower.
0: Uh, yes. Yes. No, I see. Overall, yeah. You said 20 years later. Well, when you were 18, you ran the first one, did you say? Yeah,
1: so this is 19, 1990 compared to 2016. So you're
0: one minute slower uh, as uh, 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, but
1: then paced a whole lot a whole lot better. It just made me curious. The, the front of the pack of the City to Surf seemed to have thinned out a little. Uh, I didn't know whether... you, you ha- Do you have as many of your elite runners doing City to Surf these days?
0: Um... Probably not now now that you mentioned that um it often comes at a time, for example uh close to other races that where they're having to represent Australia, for example, mm. or they're training for a race later on where the city to Surf is such a punishing race that I know that's going to cost us a, a you know a week of training after it yeah okay um yeah. but I do recall that, that, that some runners. They can run over the City of Surf and recover. The marathon runners, if they're not preoccupied with a race just a few weeks later, they'll run the City of Surf and recover well. Mm. Rob DiCostella and Steve Monteghetti, for example, have always done that. Lisa Rondike ran the City of Surf, you know, and, uh, and not long after that, won the Seoul, um, oh, sorry, was second in the Seoul Olympics in the marathon. Um, yeah, that, but it is a good point. But does that tell us something about just the general standard of population as well? You know, that we are tending to become less fit as a population, which I've got no solid evidence. I know children are tending to become less fit when we do fitness tests. When you look at the records of schools, for example, becoming less fit. Or the Institute of Sport, when uh, teams come in, young teams come in, they're not registering as highly, according to my Colleagues at the Institute of Sport not registering in the fitness tests as highly as what they were when I was there, like 15, 20 years 20 years ago, That's which so is interesting. interesting. Yeah, it is.
1: So the very front of the pack are getting faster, but the kind of next batch might be slowing down.
0: That could well be, but it could well be what you said: we might not be having as many elite runners up the front, which I know yeah. has been the case in a few of the city districts in recent times.
1: Interesting, and. Uh, what do you think about this uh, fit or fat debate, about the, uh, the, the importance of, uh, of obesity in terms of uh, uh, overall, overall health?
0: That's a tricky one. You know, it depends on who I ask. If I ask uh, a chap that I've known for you know, a lot of times from the conferences, there's a fellow called uh, Glenn Gaser, who's a professor of exercise physiology at Arizona State now, and uh, he wrote a book many, many years ago and I asked him about this book when he came out to Australia and it was called Big Fat Lies. And he denies that being fat has got much to do with ill health. Hmm. He says it's only the fact that the researchers who have made the correlations between being overweight and obese with, um, with mortality haven't accounted properly for the effect of the lack of physical activity that goes with the obese person. Right. So, in other words, it's a more or less like a spurious correlation that hasn't mm-hmm. got to the. You know, we we can't you know, we can't say that that's the cause of the death. And he, the other day in Melbourne, when I re met him again after probably fifteen or twenty years, I said, are you, "Are you still a proponent? Do you still really strongly believe that?" He said, "Even more strongly. All the more I do. It's his full life." The more he reads about it, and the more work he does on it, the more he empowers physical activity as being the true uh, mechanism behind uh, maintaining good biochemistry, for example, glucose control, blood-fat control, which is related to uh, uh, prevention of type 2 diabetes and uh, cardiovascular disease. Mm, mm. Uh, He he believes physical activity is the prime mover there, It's the prime reason, and he quotes all this research saying that um, there's never been a paper and He quoted this twenty years ago, and he said, I said, "If you found that paper yet?" He said, "No, there's never been a paper with with good design that's shown that an overweight person, unless they're morbidly obese well, mm. can hardly walk that an overweight person we, we, we call obese by the BMI standards." Um, there's never been a paper that shows that overweight people uh, have reduced mortality. What he's saying is that being overweight uh, has never been shown to produce uh, a, a reduction in lifespan. But being fit being fit will increase your lifespan. Right. And you know that's probably the simple thing I tried to say but I was thinking of some of the studies at the same time as well I got myself mixed up. And and he's still of that same hmm. same opinion, really of that same opinion. Although what we do know now, that visceral fat has some metabolic uh, associations that, that can cause sort of like endocrine response, like hormones that are produced by the fat. Right. can have deleterious es- effects on, on some, some of the tissues. He denies that. But when I talk to a colleague of mine, say, at Canberra Hospital, one of the cardiologists, for example, Dr. Walter Baratna, he will say that fat is definitely is figures in cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease. And the key is to be fit. Not to worry about being a little bit overweight, but for anyone who's overweight, they can rest assured that if they embark on a training program that doesn't reduce their weight, then they'll be increasing their longevity, according to Dr. Gason, I believe, this aspect, yep. and, and, and allowing themselves to be you know, with a, for a better quality of life as they get older.
1: Which is pretty encouraging given that what we know about diets, that most diets don't don't end up having a long-term effect on weight reduction. There's this fascinating piece in the New York Times earlier this year that went back eight years on and tracked down contestants and the biggest loser and found that on average they'd put all the weight back on. Uh, and so regardless of... How of, of what short-term effect you get, it seems to be quite hard to get long-term weight reduction effects. But as you say, an exercise program can, uh, can, can, have, can be enduring if it's a lifestyle change.
0: I think so. And, uh, the sensible way to go, because the way I look at it, Andrew, is that exercise allows us to balance off our energy in and energy out. I go back to the, the lifestyle of our kids study, the look study that we're, we're following kids from age eight right through, hopefully to age 80, here in Canberra, um, that the children who put on more fat between the ages of eight and 12 actually ate slightly less than the children who either maintained their body, body percent body fat or reduced it. And the reason that that happened was the children who were able to maintain their body fatness or even reduce their body fatness between the ages of 8 and 12 were doing more physical activity. They might run inside and grab a biscuit or something like that that the other person might, you know, the person that's um, not so active, mm. would not have. But they'd be burning it off. But in so doing, they would, the kids don't think, or oh, how much do I eat today? Uh, what exercise? Are they? They're not going to try and burn. It has to be done autonomically or automatically. And there's a base of the brain that allows us to do that. To me, that's got implications for you and and me in the sense that if we're physically active, we are much more readily able to balance what's in and out to control our body weight. And, And I'm sure that you would eat more than a lot of people that I know who are overweight because you are a physically active person. And that's typical of what we saw in the kids as they were growing. And I think that's important. So it's a combination of, you don't have to train, like as you do, for for running. But fitness, the way that a lot of the researchers that have looked at this fat versus fit thing have defined it, is really just walking the equivalent of, or walking briskly, for 30 to 40 minutes of a day. Mm. It could mm. be walking the car 5, 10 minutes, doing that three times. You don't have to put a tracksuit on and train like you do. But that fitness is a, a key to quality of life. Whereas being slightly overweight or even... More than slightly overweight doesn't seem to have the same impact as a loss of or lack of fitness.
1: Yes, yes. Well, let's move now from the mouth side to the mental side. Uh, with uh, with you know, your, with anyone in a busy life trying to fit exercise in is, uh, is is a challenge of of motivation. But then, in particular, if you're elite athletes, you've got both uh, the need to maintain that motivation to to train, not just on a beautiful day like. Uh, Canberra's put on for us today, but uh, but a, a rainy winter winter day. How do you how do you maintain that uh, that the the willingness to train, and how as a coach do you help athletes deal with the extreme stress that comes from performing in a, a high stakes competition?
0: Yeah, again, this is horses for courses. Some people, um, well. I said before that the athletes motivate me, I think, more than the other way around. It, it might be a bit the other way around, but it's not by direct, you know, rah, rah, rah you know, I used to coach football teams, completely different to coaching runners. Coaching football teams, yeah, there is some motivation. You've got to go and put their body on the line and so on. And, mm. and you, you've got to get into them. And sometimes you rip into a person you're not, you think not putting it in. But that's a football culture. Uh, I don't know if the coaches still do that, but I certainly did when I coached football, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and uh, I expected that from the coaches to me when I was playing football. But in running, um, I don't have to tell people to get out to run. Even the ones that I referred to before that want to finish top 10 in the Canberra Times fun run, which is pretty damn good. um, I don't have to get them to do that. They want to do it. And it just reminded me too, Andrew, that uh, I think you'd be in the same boat as as I am. It's a bit like the drover's dog, you know, or any dog. You know, I just can't wait to get out for a run. I had a dog, um, which was <laughs> a, a fantastic dog. Uh, um, I always said that I'm not going to get another one. It's too sad when they die, and I want I want to outlive the dog next time. <laughs> I, sorry, I want the yeah, that's right. I want, want the, the dog to outlive me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so but uh, I had a dog that. Um, if I you know, tested this out one day, it's a, it's a bit cruel, I suppose. I put its, its food down and then put my runners on to go for a run. And Zach, the dog, he would not go to his food when he thought that I was going to be out the door without it. And he waited. He looked over at the food. <laughs> he looked at me, put my runners <laughs> on. Then I'd walk over the door and he'd get up. And, and then as soon as he knew I was out the door, waited and have his food when he came back. Now that to me, it's sort of a little bit, I get into that sort of routine too. For example, this morning, that's a nice day, but, but I just like to get out in the morning mm. and, and you know, if it's raining, what the hell, I just put some wet weather gear on, it that, that did not matter, oh, it's a bit cold, you put a beanie on, some gloves. It makes no difference, I'm the same temperature no matter what it is, you just put different clothes on. So it makes no difference that it's a shocking old day. Just get out there and, and uh, go out for a bit of a run, come back, have a shower and have breakfast. I just do that all the time. I just like to do that. And the runners do too. If I sometimes tell the runners, look, I only want you to run once a day this week, for example, Michael Shelley before the marathon or before any marathon, Michael, all you need to do is just run once a day, you know, but, you know, I just don't feel right, you know. Can I just go for you know an easy six or seven or eight k in the morning? <laughs> oh, all right, Michael. All right, if you have to do it, because really that's like anyone just walking down the you know the street and getting themselves a you know, bite to eat.
1: <laughs> and to be clear, just to, to anyone who's listening to this and uh, d- what Dick's talking about here, we're talking about a city which uh, will often be sub-zero in the middle in the middle of winter. So uh, so when Dick's saying you know just throw on a beanie and uh, and head out. Many Canberrans would find it a little bracing to, uh, to go out for a run and, uh, in, in minus five degrees on a winter morning. I think it says a lot about your attitude to running and how much you love it, that uh, you just you brush off the, uh, the, the conditions like that. But one of the interesting things I also wanted to, to explore on the mental side was your unusual record where all of your best times... Uh, you're uh, one, 1 minute 58 for the 800, you're 3 minute 57 for the 1500, you're 1 hour 9 for the half marathon, you're 2 hour 27 for the marathon, we're all set in the very, time, very last time you raced that event. What does that say about
0: you? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, be, because I didn't uh, train for running when I was a youngster in my 20s and really only got into it uh, that uh, I was looking after the Victorian cricket team. Uh, so it's another story, but I, I, I got given the opportunity to be the coaching coordinator and um, and fitness advisor and manager. It was all in one of those days. Highly unprofessional as it is, would be ten people doing what I did now. Um, and and I used to watch cricket all day uh, during the summer when we'd go away on the trips. No, I couldn't just do that. If I'd be over in Adelaide, well, you know, boys would up into the shower, see you later, fellas, I'm off up to Torrens for a run, come back in an hour and I'd have a shower and meet them bite the eat later on. You know, Max Walker, for example, who just died the other day, by the way, was very sad. Um, and so lots of other runners. I'd have, I'd have the 12th man often coming with, with me. Nice. 12th man would often come for a run with me and yeah. you know, do the things like that because he'd been sitting all day too. And you know, I'd twist his arm and, you know, no, you don't need to go for a beer now. You come out for a run with me. And that would, that would happen. And um, um, so I didn't run when I was, I was young. I might have at school. You did, you know, run a couple of local races or something at school under 16, whatever. But um, getting into it at the age of 30, I found that as a footballer, I had a little bit of speed, not a great deal, but I still could run, a, run more endurance. So I had to build up to a marathon until I ran a marathon I was quite satisfied with. I still reckon I could have run faster, but I was satisfied with it. Then I thought, well, if I'm people have asked me to coach at that stage, they want me to coach 1500, 5K. I haven't, I haven't really trained the guts out for those races. I don't really know what it's like. So I thought, well, I'll change, and I'll I'll, I'll become uh, a middle-distance runner. Mm. And, and I'll be interested to see what processes that. When I started to become a middle-distance runner, was um, I, I thought, well, if I'm going to become a middle-distance runner, I may as well try and be the best in Australia in my age group, in the, in the vets, because 38, 39, getting on towards 40. And the World Championships are on in such and such a year and, and I'd be 43 then. That'd be a good one to aim at, too, for the 1500. So I gradually built up, but I found that when I started to run, which was interesting, off marathon training, and I was running, say, 150, 160k a week for a lot of weeks, not as much as, well, the, the modern marathoners do now, um, that... Um, it took me quite a while to get my speed back. Mm. You know, it taught me that, you know, horses for courses again, you train your muscular system and you know, the cardiovascular system and you'll become a better long-distance runner But that can take away from running fast over 800 metres, for example, or 400 metres, that was yeah. true. So I, it took me three or four years to improve. And I thought, this is strange, because here I am improving my 1,500 and 800 metre running and yet I'm getting older, 38, 39, 40, 41. And, uh, and then I looked at all my last races and found that I'd done the same thing. I'd built up for the 5K at one stage. I'd built up for the 10K. I'd built up for... And and when I'd sort of satisfied, I'd stopped. So my last races for those races happened to be my fastest. So I thought, well, I can do this for the 800 and 1500 too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I worked for the 800 and 1500. And the first thing I had to do was try and get under two minutes for the 800 and under four minutes for 1,500. That took me quite a while. As I was getting older, I thought, well, something's going to catch up with me sooner or later. I might not be able to do it, but I did. Mm. Got under these, then improved again. So the very last races in Australian Championship was the 800, which I won, and the World Championship, 1,500, where I was equal third. And uh, and that was great thrill for me because, you know, there was a, a chap there to run the Olympics for the, you know, for New Zealand and so on, and he won. Oh, he was second actually, and uh, I thought, what's well, terrific! I've run against an Olympian. Mind you, he's forty-four now, and I was forty-three, but it was just terrific. And I thought, well, that I've done all I need to do now. Mm. Uh, I'm becoming too um, conscious and too self-centered on my own running. I'm not coaching as well as what I should be. Finished. Oh, that's a good place to finish. We've got a PB in each of those in the last races that I've run.
1: Yes, (laughs) that's great. So, Dick, let me just finish with a standard set of questions that I've asked uh, all of my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Um, I'll try to find a way to... uh, to yeah, uh, you know, to overcome the the deficiencies one sees in oneself at an early age, where you lack confidence in what you're doing, you're very very self, conf- you know, very self-conscious about various aspects of, you know, who I was and what I was doing, and was I good enough and all this sort of business. Um, whereas I I now realise that uh, a lot of teenagers would go through that, but but I thought it was just me at the time, you know, and the, the Bates were the ones that were. It wasn't through a lack of sporting ability or, uh, because I was always doing well. and It wasn't through lack of school. I was always doing okay there too. And I don't know what it was. It was just a general, general feeling that, you know, I didn't have what it took. And uh, in growing up, and there was a lack of self-confidence there. But uh, I, I think that's probably the only thing because, you know, I was, I was happy at home. Uh, very happy at home. I was happy at school. Uh, generally, at friends, and, uh, it was just a lack of self-confidence. I suppose that if uh, somewhat, if I had have had a coach, which we had a football coach and cricket coach, but you only saw them, you know, a couple of times. They didn't really talk to you personally about anything. Uh, I think that would help. Mm. So I, I sort of often feel that way. You know, when I've had youngsters coming through. So you get to know them as friends. If there's anything that a coach can do that a parent might not be able to do at a particular time that you don't want to talk about with your parents, but coaches you can, that's happened quite a few times and uh, you don't push it, but I think just growing up as a teenager, um, I now realise I wouldn't have been on my own by any Mm. sort of things Mm. I was thinking about.
1: What's something you used to believe, but no longer do?
0: Um, I can't think of anything offhand Uh, a lot of things I haven't believed in right from the start Um, but um, I can't there's there's nothing that comes to mind Andrew about what I've really changed my mind about I suppose you know Lately, I, things have surprised me in in, in the area of um, that we've got with gender, you know, and, and, and sex, and, and those sort of things. That it's not as though I've changed my mind, but you just learn to understand things a little bit better as to what other people experience. It was very difficult for me uh, to understand what homosexuality was about. You know, I couldn't understand it. You know, it wasn't. I hadn't come across any of it ever uh, in growing up, and uh, didn't even think about it. And then now we see it as a very, mm. very real part of life. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it's got to be—it's got be, to be real. You know, it's—it's it's not something that people just learn to be or whatever. Uh, it's something now we've just got to say, well, that's—that's that's part of our society now, and mm. and mm. we've got to—we have to accept that. Despite what I was taught in Sunday school, for example, yes. you know. Yeah. Um, so I suppose it's not believing because I don't think I thought about it in those days too much either. I didn't change my mind, but certainly my attitudes have changed.
1: When are you most happy?
0: Um, I would say uh, when I see my family doing well. Um... Yeah, the kids. You know, when you see them kicking on. And, uh, the daughter's a lawyer in uh, in uh, Sydney now, and she's done really well with the A Triple C before that, and then moved that, and she'll hopefully move back, <laughs> and uh, that would be great. But she's really enjoying her work, and, and and we've got she's got her kids, and it's great seeing them. The son has worked with me on the look study all the way through. He's just moved down to Melbourne for a new career with his girlfriend. And that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, with my wife and myself living together here in Canberra, that's a pretty happy way to be. Um, and, of course, there's the selfish side. It's terrific. For, I love seeing people enjoying and their running and doing well. And I love doing well academically. You know, that's, they're similar. Mm. I can get the same sort of satisfaction out of getting a good paper published or presenting well and getting good feedback than from someone doing well in the running seat. It's very similar. Yeah. It just makes you feel as though you're contributing something to, to society in a way. And by the way, all my I, I don't ever want to charge anything for coaching running. It's not what I do. You know, it's, that's the pleasure side of it. Mind you, I'm, professional coaching is a great career. And I did it for a little while while I was at the Institute of Sport just to experience that for a few years, but I didn't like it. I, I like to have running as the, the the part that I can turn to, you know, for my my own recreation and pure enjoyment, without, you know, having to rely on it for a living. Now, if the University of Canberra decided not to pay me for the three days a week I'm over there now, and I don't need the other two and my stage of life maybe I might charge the athletes you know, if I couldn't pay the bills. But I, no, I wouldn't like to do that. Yes. So that, that's where I'm happiest, you know, with that bal- balancing up the life with physical activity, the, the coaching, the academic side, and the friends and the family. I mean, that's, that's, that's great.
1: Do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: Uh, I'm not guilty about the pleasures. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not guilty. I, have all the, I think I have all the pleasures. I'm not someone who cuts things out, you know. Oh, well, you know, I certainly wouldn't do stupid things like smoke or drink a lot of alcohol, you know, but it's ridiculous, I don't even enjoy it. wouldn't wouldn't even smoke anyway and uh, couldn't enjoy a lot of alcohol all at once anyway, if I, even if I, you know, just just doesn't seem right. To, not right, but I, I just wouldn't enjoy having more than a, two or three glasses of beer or a couple of glasses of wine. It just doesn't feel good. So that's not guilty pleasure. It's not... Um, but I do love good food, you know, really good, a really good restaurant. And uh, I'm not guilty about that. It's just that sometimes I think, well, gee, should I should not be spending this money? I should be going to someone who needs it more than me spending, you know, 100 bucks on a meal or something. But, you yeah, those are the sort of things I suppose you do feel mm. slightly guilty about, that we, we've got in Canberra being a, quite an affluent society and uh, certainly not rich by any means and never will be, never have been, but enough to get a house and, and it, to live the way that you want to live without... I haven't got a superannuation that's of any great substance at the moment because I cashed it in for a deposit on a house early. I didn't care. Uh, So now it means, which I knew I was going to anyway, it means I've got to keep working. But that's not the reason I'm working. It just so happens that I'll be getting some money while I do work three days a week, Um, they know I work six days a week over there and Ball, uh, <laughs> but I don't want that responsibility being paid as a full-time academic, mm. because I want to be able to go overseas with my athletes if I want to, and not have to justify being away from work, or or having responsibilities for a group. The only teach the only teaching I do will be with my PhD students, and, mm. you know you don't mm. have to rock up you know for classes each week for them, and you know what that's all about. That gives me that freedom to balance off coaching as well as the um, the academic side, which is related to the physical activity and the health of our our nation anyway, in many respects.
1: And finally, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Well, you always go back to your your mum and dad, I I suppose. Uh, My parents never ever really told me anything. I don't know what it was, maybe it was my personality. I can't remember them saying, you should do that or you should do this. But I suppose it's just by what they did, you know, you you tend to want to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, I remember um, my dad was a smoker. I knew he didn't want to smoke, but he was a smoker, even when I was 13. I went away on a football trip when I had, you know, the first football team I played for, I was at age 13, went up the bush somewhere in Victoria, and all my mates were smoking, and there's this huge peer pressure, you know, to, to have a smoke, and, and I succumbed to the pressure and put a cigarette in my mouth and lit it up when I was 13. But at that very stage, I refused to draw the cigarette smoke into my lungs, I mean, for some reason, I knew that wasn't good my mates didn't think about it there was something there but the father hadn't told me never never smoke but what well, from somehow he he, he got into my mind that I shouldn't smoke or I shouldn't drink a lot of alcohol whereas other people would go out and get drunk and I wouldn't do that um so I, I suppose the parents but along the way there are numerous people absolute numerous people I, I I'd say hundreds of people have had a huge impact on me from what they did and the experience that they've given me uh, you know, it, during, during life. The you know, bosses that I've had at universities, uh, coaches that I've had, uh, physical education teachers that I've had, I can think of all those things. As I look back and say, um, what's my personality made up of now? We know it's you know, a bit of nature, a bit of nurture. Well, of this nurture there, I could see bits and pieces of lots of people, apart from the parents. Um, behind what I might say to somebody else, and suddenly say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it comes out as you get older. At the age of 71 now, <laughs> one of the advantages of getting old is you have you have a lot of experience to draw on. And when people ask me things uh, about a particular topic or what it was, often some person that I know I've talked to about this, and that is in the back of my mind that they've rejigged. So I know that person has has, has made some sort of impact on and me as I am now, which is interesting.
1: Well, all of it's been interesting to me. So thank you very much, Dick Telford, for taking the time to speak today on The Good Life podcast.
0: It's my very pleasure, Andrew.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Next week I speak with...
0: Well, you just have to tune in, won't you?